Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Jacobus Vrel is not exactly a household name. A painter of quiet Dutch genre scenes, he produced some 50 works and quickly fell into obscurity. Composing modest interiors and street scenes, Vrel's mature paintings predate those of the most celebrated Dutch masters in the 17th century. In fact, many of his works were misattributed to Johannes Vermeer. In this lecture, held on April 22, 2019, Kristen Gonzalez from the Department of Northern Baroque Paintings discusses the gallery's Young Woman in an Interior by Jacobus Vrel and the striking modernity of his genre paintings. In anticipation of a major retrospective exhibition in Munich, Paris, and The Hague next year, Gonzalez discusses the challenge of studying the enigmatic Vrel and establishing his artistic identity distinct from Vermeer and his contemporaries. Good afternoon. I began working on this painting about two years ago um, with the goal of publishing an entry for the National Gallery's systematic catalog of Dutch paintings. In a concerted effort to understand this work, place it in context, and write this entry, I have managed to scratch the surface at best. Research has been productive only in revealing how much more research is needed. So taking full advantage of the title of this lecture series, Works in Progress, I will share the narrative of the course of my research thus far. I invite you to look at this painting, simply to sit and look. We have a pleasing yet basic interior of a home in which a young woman sits on a chair, gazing out the Dutch door. Two chairs flank the young woman, whose proportions appear somewhat squat and strange. I mean the chairs, not the woman. <laughs> Behind her, a bedstead along the wall reveals a woman resting, with her head somewhat awkwardly positioned, her eyes closed, and one hand visible above the blankets. The young woman, possibly a nurse, seems content contemplative, but she's inaccessible. Her thoughts are her own. The focus of her gaze is also her own. Framing the bedstead and the fireplace, which dominates the right side of the composition, are a variety of stoneware plates. Two candle holders terminate either ends of the fireplace mantle, enabling us to discern more clearly the delineation of the fireplace structure, which juts out of the wall and overlaps the painted line of the bedstead at a perpendicular angle. Small kitchen implements hang just below the mantel, echoing the placement and sheen of the candlesticks above, both of which provide an interesting contrast to the color and surface finish of the brass tones of the bed warmer hung to the left of the opening of the bedstead. The modest fire burns in the hearth and is accompanied by a set of fireplace tongs and a small fuhrstolp, which would have been placed over the embers to contain the fire before closing the curtain panels of the bed and retiring for the evening. Whether the woman in the bedstead is resting or very ill, the other woman is likely charged with her care and would tend to this fire, that is, if she can be disturbed from such deep reverie. It's deceptively simple, this picture. As I study this work and consider the 38 or so paintings assigned to Jakob Frel, I am floored. I am astonished by their beauty, their complexity, but at the same time, their simplicity and the charged psychological atmosphere he evokes. Yet Frel has been largely ignored and often marginalized in the vast troves of literature dedicated to the art of the Northern Baroque period. 
Ironically, contemporary scholars of 19th century art have acknowledged Frel's significance, most recently in the current exhibition of Danish artist Hammershoi at the Jacquemart André in Paris. An entire essay of the catalog, in fact, which um, should arrive shortly. Frel's palette, often muted, has even been compared to the pale gray and rosy tones later employed by Whistler. While 19th century artists may have recognized Frel's contributions, scholars and critics of this period were far from generous in their assessment of this painter. Backhanded compliments are the rule rather than the exception, admiring his charming naivete. In order to place Frel's work in context, I quickly realized a certain objectivity was required, and one rather significant obstacle stood in the way of this. Johannes Vermeer may not appreciate the label obstacle, but in light of countless exhibitions, publications, and a steady stream of frenzied fans worldwide, eager for the experience to stand in the sacred space before his paintings, I hope Vermeer will not mind that we briefly set him aside to examine the mysterious Frel, whose mature works in fact predate Vermeer's. After Vermeer's rediscovery in the 19th century and the ensuing pandemonium, he might appreciate a short rest and allow a spotlight to shine briefly upon an artist whose obscurity has not been unveiled just yet. Okay, I admit that I used the illustrious name of Johannes Vermeer in the title of today's lecture to lure many of you here. Whether Vermeer knew Frel, whether there was any influence upon one another is not the goal of my research. In fact, such questions really compromise the objectivity we need to consider Frel. In the eloquent words of one scholar, if anything, Frel's pensive images have offered us a way of finding a slightly different approach to deal with artworks that stirred us to move away from interpretation, out of a historical paradigm, and toward a state of suspension where thinking can start. What has been haunting art history is perhaps not the ghosts of the past, but the artwork's capacity to philosophize, to think. If we decide to let Frel's paintings take the lead, they, having waited for us so long, might take us forward by going backwards. They might direct us towards a rediscovery of art history's philosophical foundations, forming a possible basis for an emergent area of philosophical art history, invoked by Panofsky, yet never systematically explored. Such rare praise, not for Frel, but for the pursuit of Frel, and the rewards one might reap was promising. Allowing Frel's paintings to take the lead is exactly my intention, but the other JV seems to loom everywhere, impeding this objective. Given the juxtaposition of the gallery's Frel, as you can see here on the far right, with the famed masterpieces of Johannes Vermeer, you too may be forgiven if your recollection of this work is hazy at best. Perhaps you were jostled about by other visitors struck with Vermeer mania. Given the intimate quarters of this gallery, you may also be forgiven if you or your companions were reprimanded by the man above, as these visitors were. We're too close to the Please <laughs> Eager to escape reprimand, you may have made a beeline for the large environment of the adjacent gallery, and in doing so, you may have walked right by this quiet, unassuming painting. 
The only definitive association we can make between Frell and Vermeer is one which linked the painters together long after their respective deaths. Sharing the same initials and interest in modest domestic interiors and street scenes, misattributions, some deliberate, others perhaps unintentional, were common in the late 19th and early 20th century. The French journalist and critic Torre Berger credited with much of the rediscovery of Johannes Vermeer and the Dutch School of Painting in 1866, owned a number of Frel's works, which were attributed to Vermeer. But it was 20 years later when the Dutch art historian Abraham Bradius singled out Frel. Technical analysis of other works by Frel reveal concerted attempts by unscrupulous dealers to forge Vermeer's name and fetch prices unattainable by Frel. Unfortunately, their attempts to attribute Frel's work to Vermeer or Pieter de Hoch took aim at one of Frel's most unique hallmarks. You may have noticed these small slips of paper strewn across an otherwise spotless floor. Frel often signed his name on them. In the case of this painting at the Fondation Custodia in Paris, they were scrubbed out and inscribed Pieter de Hoch, a contemporary of Vermeer. In some cases, Vrel signed the piece of paper which was nailed to the wall. Here, in the Paris example, it may have also been signed, but the paper was removed all together. The nail, however, remains. Harsh criticism of our poor Vrel dominates the 19th century and well beyond. Here's just a partial list of some of the adjectives used in describing Vrel's works. Moderately talented, marginal and idiosyncratic, monochrome monotony used to describe his color palette. And one of my favorites, the dully self-effacing regularity of that line of plates above the pelmet. And I've looked very carefully at these plates and there's a definite influence from many, many regions, perhaps as far as Scandinavia. So I think they're anything um, but dull. Do I sense a bit of empathy here? Come on, you know you're rooting for the underdog. Much of this commentary is directed at the formal painterly qualities of his work. Commentary we might expect from critics, connoisseurs, collectors. But let's consider criticism of Frel's themes. That his interiors lack narrative interest. Okay, the rooms are sparse. We can admit that. Especially when we consider the vast array of objects incorporated into so many paintings of the period. Painters eager to showcase their talents for patrons who were, in turn, eager to celebrate the glory and splendor of the golden age with conspicuous references to the wealth of goods available to their independent, prosperous nation. One of many examples illustrated here on the right. But such uncluttered compositions are one of the most defining and celebrated characteristics of Vermeer's paintings. Such sparse interiors allow for broad surface planes and a certain abstraction, both of which herald, for many, the roots of artistic modernism. So let's tuck Vermeer away for a bit, again, and discuss Frel and his oeuvre. There are roughly 38 to 40 paintings known and attributed to Jakob Frel. One half of these are street scenes, wonderful works. Like Frel's interior scenes, they are quiet. People move about with purpose or converse quietly on the streets of towns we cannot identify. More on that later. Two church interiors have been attributed to Frel and one drawing, which I was unfortunately unable to reproduce here. 
we will return to the theme of the church in the hotbed of Protestant reform and religious intolerance in the Netherlands just a bit later. Woman in an Interior is one of about 19 domestic interior scenes comprising the other half of Frell's artistic output. They are almost exclusively women. Women engaged in a household task, tending to the infirm, as in the gallery's picture, or tending to children. In this case, de-lousing a child, a theme repeated often by later painters like Pieter de Hoch here on the right, or tending to the fire. Consistently, women are represented whose attention is focused entirely on something or someone else. A book, a disturbance or event which has brought this woman to the window. Or, as with this example in Brussels, has her rifling through a drawer in search of something, preoccupied entirely in this task and entirely unaware of the viewer. And in perhaps the most jarring and immediate of his works, this woman's attention is, understandably, wholly focused on the ghost-like figure of a young child appearing on the other side of the leaded window, so much so that she tips her chair precariously towards the windowsill, completely oblivious of the viewer, or even the room in which she occupies, as she tries to make sense of what she is seeing. All of these pictures project a sense of intimacy, even if we, as viewers, are not acknowledged. This is an intimacy unlike the later Dutch genre painters, in which the viewer is more of an active participant, where the door is flung open and the figure responds in shock to the intrusion, or whose architectural perspective leads our eye through an entrance hall into the action and then allows us to stay and investigate. Okay, clearly the couple on the left are getting the parrot drunk, but our eye then leads us into another room and then, our visual curiosity satisfied, the eye rests upon a terminal spot, often a window or door returning to the street. Satisfied it has completed its journey, the eye can move on to something else. If it is the eye of an art historian, it will return to the painting, this time with the objective of landing on a variety of elements which either on their own or in concert with one another convey meaning. The art historian is consumed with interpreting these elements to package and deliver a satisfying iconographic scheme contrived by the artist, or not, often ripe with ambiguity, but nonetheless an invitation to the viewer to linger, consume, interpret, exit, and return at any time. As Elizabeth Honig has convincingly demonstrated, Frell affords us no fulfillment in the process of vision. These subjects are without objects of desire. We are trapped in Frell's work. In some way, this inspires a sense of disquietude and uneasiness. We cannot decipher what may have brought this woman to the window. Her back is to us, and she has vacated the space psychologically by means of her position, her head tilted and peering to the side, her energy and attention entirely redirected. On the right, the boy is not unlike our young nurse, caught in reverie, but the fact that we are not privileged to the object of their desire, the fact that we do not receive such a warm welcome by the picture's inhabitants, that we cannot choose to focus on an array of objects, symbols, that we are not afforded a deeper perspective does not dissuade me, at least, from wanting to stay, to stay and contemplate. 
Farrell's work gives us no profound sense of satisfaction, visual or otherwise. It's quiet, but disquieting. In fact, the figures such as our young nurse or the little boy do not allow us to penetrate their psyche. Does not mean we walk away from them. Again, Farrell challenges us and makes us want to stay. The gallery's Frell, one of a number of Frell scenes in which a young woman is charged with the responsibility of maintaining watch over another woman who is ill, resting in a bedstead similar to the one constructed in our painting. I should be careful in assigning too much iconographic importance to these women tucked away in the recesses of the bedstead, especially as there is no figure in the bedstead of the San Diego version of this theme. The Antwerp variation, which is on the uh, right, reveals a patient, but she's rather awkwardly propped up in a manner suggesting Frell was either experimenting with a perspectival challenge of including a figure basically painted into the wall and or he added her later. And while the gallery's composition on the left affords a more generous view of the woman in the bedstead, her profile reveals little about her age or condition and her features are indistinctly rendered. I began to look at these scenes and compare compositional elements which were removed or added to discern variations in his style. And I quickly re realized that such an exercise is at this point futile. Sure, it would be nice to establish a more definitive date for this work, but would that really shed any light on Frell and his contributions? Frustrated by the lack of progress I was making, and because I am and always will be a medievalist at heart, I began looking at possible compositional precedents for works featuring the care of the sick. After all, the Journal of the American Medical Association found the galleries for all significant enough to grace the cover of this 2004 issue. The theme of illness, its treatment and its pictorial expression in the art of Europe is, as one would expect, a vast treasure trove for anyone interested in the history of medicine. And as later genre painters soon discovered, it was a great source of entertainment. Far removed from the quiet intimacy of Frell's interior, doctors, quacks as they were often called, hold vials of urine for our inspection with mischievous grins, a twinkle in their eye, and a generally condescending demeanor towards their patients. Women elegantly attired in ermine-trimmed velvet coats who collapse weakly. The diagnosis, love sickness. Frell's presentation is far more straightforward and serious and much more representative of the late medieval pictorial tradition of placing the patient in a bed, not a bedstead here, but a distinct architectural space where he or she is attended to by one or more servants. Like Frell's patient, these figures are often almost completely covered by a blanket. The head and upper torso is visible and occasionally a hand or arm is resting on top of the covers. The fireplace, in a strikingly similar configuration to the late medieval convention, illustrated in the center from page from the Tequinum Sanitatis, and most famously in the February scene of Trevish Ur de Duc de Berry, actively burns in Frell's interior, ensuring the room is warm enough for the patient. And I should note here that Frell's young woman may be daydreaming, not attending to the fire, but she is far more modestly presented than her late medieval counterpart on the far right, who's sort of lifting her skirt to take in the warmth of the hearth. The hand of this patient is significant, 
as Wayne Farnitz has demonstrated, indicating the severity of the illness with limp wrists. Boulevard's Curologia, published in this period, illustrates this gesture. But such depictions, common in herbal and medicinal treatises of the late Middle Ages, and their influence on Frel, while very interesting, cannot contribute much, at least at this point. I then considered the theme of feminine occupations. Nearly all of Frel's interiors represent women in various domestic activities, including tending to the sick. There are many representations of the Dutch women in the home, and I will show you some of the best from the gallery's collection. De Hoch paints a woman beaming at her young daughter with pride as she folds the linens, the floors sparkle, and her diligence in keeping a tidy home is well documented. But distractions abound, namely visiting soldiers, alcohol, tobacco, and or parrots who pull these women away from their tasks. Treatises published in this period, by men of course, define these roles, glorify these roles, and assure these women they are really very truly happy in such roles. Enigmatic as Frel remains, I don't see the value or relevance in attempting to assign complex layers of symbolic meaning to the women's tasks in the home. Not only has so much been published on this topic in general, but given the intensely self-absorbed nature of the figures in his work, I would not speculate upon their feelings just yet, anyway. Whether moving through the streets with purpose, like this woman, or frantically rummaging through the drawer of the Brussels painting, these figures are inaccessible. They're preoccupied, too busy to think about gender-defined roles, really. They're on the move. The circulation of a set of early engravings produced by a female artist, Gertraud Rautmann, may shed sunlights on Frel's women, at least in their compositional arrangement and attire, specifically here in this print, which reveals a striking similarity to the Vienna painting. On the other hand, if we acknowledge Rautmann's early influence, we can then say that she dressed the Pope. So where now? Biography should be the word in blinking lights. But in the case of Jakob Frel, we simply don't have it. Nada. We don't even know how to spell his name. Here's a list, and this is not a complete list, of possible variations of the spelling of his first and last name. So this is just one of the many challenges. We do not know when or where Jakobus Frel was born, where he worked, or where he died. He may not even have been Dutch, which will make it somewhat difficult to publish this entry in the systematic catalog of Dutch paintings. <laughs> The following are a number of regions which have been proposed, argued, and rejected. Harlem, Delft, Amsterdam, and in Flanders, Brussels and Antwerp. There have been some impressive, clearly exhaustive attempts to connect Frel to these cities and regions. And scholars have used two methods to determine where he might be from. Comparative analysis of architectural details, facades, rooftops, gables, windows, doors, materials, bricklaying patterns in urban topography has been undertaken in an effort to make a stylistic match and connect Frel to Delft, Harlem, Antwerp, among many other regions. This has been largely unsuccessful, and it's apparent Frel has taken some license, played with a number of architectural styles, and produced something of a hodgepodge. Archives containing the citizenship and artistic guilds of these cities 
have been searched exhaustively with no results. So what do we have? We have the Archduke Leopold Wilhelm of Austria, governor to the Spanish Netherlands at the court of Brussels. An avid collector and connoisseur, the Archduke employed the Antwerp painter David Teniers II to act as his agent and curator. Teniers, a Flemish painter whose genre scenes, like this one, located upstairs in the Dutch cabinet galleries, profiled the less affluent members of society who frequented watering holes such as this one. This is one of the greatest paintings, I think, in the cabinet galleries. He was a prolific painter who produced countless genre scenes for an eager and demanding market. In the years before the Austro-Prussian War forced the Archduke to leave Brussels and to take residence in Vienna, he and Teniers collected works on a massive scale. I illustrate one of a number of his uh, Kunstkammer, or cabinet curiosities, in which the Archduke proudly exhibits his collection. In Vienna, the extensive collections were the, system, were the subject of a systematic inventory in 1659. Here in this inventory, we are rewarded with the documentation of three of Vell's paintings. Importantly, this inventory records the date of 1654 for the painting on the left. This work, like so many which were stored in the Stahlberg Gallery of Hofburg Palace, comprises much of today's collection of the Kunsthistorisches Museum. And here's the Stahlberg Gallery today, whose collection now comprises flying Lippenzahners from the Spanish Writing School. I know it's not much biography, a drop really, but a reliable date of 1654 for the Vienna Vrel is important because it's an attribution which is original to the 17th century. So I returned to Frel's works and the figures, hoping they might inspire something. I have read that Frel's figures, through their anonymity, lack narrative interest. The process of vision, as I discussed earlier, in which a subject's gaze should be directed to and satisfied by an external object, is not fulfilled. But does this make his figures any less compelling? On the contrary, I believe it makes Frel and the inhabitants of both his interior and street scenes more compelling, much more. This dis disquietude, this uneasiness the viewer may feel in the interiority of his paintings, this psychological barrier created by vision which cannot be completed, the absorption of the figures in their tasks, their refusal to grant us access to their activity, to the focus of their attention, or to the thoughts running through their minds, is, in my opinion, fascinating. It may also be dangerous. Dangerous because it compels me to create a narrative for him, for the figures in his work, yes, but also for the figure of Frel as a person and a painter. Indulge me for just one moment in a very non-scientific experiment, one which really has no basis in fact, as we have so very little facts about this artist. Could Frel's characters, full of anonymity, lacking specificity, barring entry to the compositions in which they are painted, in fact reflect a different narrative, a narrative illustrating the events of Frel's own life to which he was witness. Frel's young woman here is contemplative. She is thoughtful. Her gaze is somewhat wistful, somewhat resigned. Is the woman in the bedstead dying or merely resting? Is the white filmy substance enveloping her merely an inept attempt to position this figure more firmly into the recess of the bedstead, as we have seen with the other variations? 
Or is she a fading presence, enveloped in this strange gaze like the form of the child who appears on the other side of this window, the painting on the right? If we could see her face, we might be inclined to say, she looks like she's seen a ghost. From the tilting of the chair at such a precarious angle, from her body language, I don't think we need to see her face to determine this. We are trapped in the narrative. We are participating in the narrative as the woman is thrown completely off guard, struggling to make sense of what she sees. Our experience of vision is, on the contrary, rewarded here. This young child, or this form of a child, is the object of her vision, and we too are involved. We participate. I wonder if we may even be invited to participate, to confirm that what she sees is not merely a figment of her imagination. This work, and this woman in particular, has been impossible to ignore. I cannot shake it from my mind. Here, I believe it's where the viewer really has an opportunity to participate. Can we not participate with empathy? There is inexplicable grief in the figure of this woman. We don't need to see her tears or the look of anguish on her face. Call Frell's figures squat and ill-proportioned, fine. But don't call them lacking narrative interest, please. Look at these works and suspend your disbelief for a moment. So just go with this. Something is taking place. Something important has drawn this woman to the window. Something motivates this woman, perhaps the same woman, to rifle through the drawers with purpose. All right. Look at the people on the streets. They do engage. They do interact with one another. But this is not lighthearted banter. Their conversations are meaningful, but quiet. It appears that the woman here may be informing these men. Maybe she has news, an update. Returning to this work, the baby's cradle and the woman's anguish initially prompted me to think Perhaps this mother has lost her child. Especially as the child, or the ghost of this child, seems to return and engage her from the other side, so to speak. Twice, actually, both of these works. One of the nurse interiors, revealing a more generous depiction of an alert patient, features two young women attending to her, one younger and one older, as well as a baby visible in the cradle. Assuming the young woman in the bedstead is the mother, and assuming she is the same woman delousing her child in both of these scenes, it seems she recovers and raises more than one child, as evident by the figure of the boy, his loop discarded, gazing wistfully at the courtyard outside. In fact, when we return to the National Gallery and Antwerp pictures, which are the um, centers, the gallery, and on the far right is in Antwerp, the theme of caring for the sick is altogether different. The woman in the earlier scene on the left, dare I say, I think it's earlier, but I, I really do think it is, is propped up in recovery. She faces the window and embraces the warm daylight. A mirror is hung between the frame of the windows. Did this woman lose not her granddaughter, the infant in the crib, but her daughter in the bedstead? Perhaps the woman in the gallery's painting is really not a nurse. Maybe she's a relative, her sister. Could this relative then be charged with the care of the children after the death of the mother? Her nephew, if so, is not gazing out the door, longing to go outside and play. He's discarded his toy. Perhaps he's thinking about this, this, his mother, 
contemplating her death in a similar vein as this woman, gazing out the window as she tends to her dying sister. And we might as well keep going with this, as the grandmother, alone here, is visited by her daughter, perhaps, appearing not as she did before her death, but as she did as a child. Alone in her old age, the grandmother retreats to the safety and warmth of the fireplace, tending to it, staring at it, and propped up against it in a melancholic slumber with the cat at her feet. And if any of this is even remotely possible, who is Frel? What is his role? Is he the father of the young woman who passed away, watching helplessly as his daughter is taken from him? Does he recognize the grief of his wife will never cease? Is he conveying his inability to participate in so many of these scenes, at least to participate emotionally? If the other figures are so distant, so inaccessible, is it because they are not accessible to him? Is this the psychological and painted barrier from which he witnesses these tragic events? While this poses a fascinating narrative, without any biographical details, it's impossible to confirm or reject with any certitude. And so in the yet to be completed narrative, tracing my research in so many different directions, I can posit only one firm conclusion. To make any meaningful contribution to the literature devoted to Frell, it is not enough to push Vermeer out of the limelight. It is not enough to dismiss the derogatory summations of Frell's work. Comparative analysis of Frell's style and the details of his composition don't really place him in context. Tracing possible sources of influence upon him or by him has been undertaken and really only reveals he could be in a number of cities. Without further biography, will he remain on the other side of the window, inaccessible to all of us? And without biography, with no record of his existence in the citizenship or guild records, how can we confirm that he truly was an artist, not a Sunday painter, as some scholars have posited? But why would an amateur painter regularly repeat specific themes, making only minor changes in the arrangement of details if he had no patron? And how could the work of an amateur have made its way into the Archduke's collection? In the short period in which the Archduke's collections grew substantially in Brussels, there may be some clue. I'd like to take more of a look at the role played by his agent and curator, David Teniers. How would Tuniers located and obtained these works? The archives of Brussels and Antwerp, like those of the Northern Netherlands, have been exhaustively searched and no record of Frel can be found. Is there something in Tuniers' work of this period that might inform us? The appearance of the Capuchin monks in a number of Frel's street scenes has prompted some scholars to argue against his activity in the Protestant North. And you can see them here on the right. They always appear in two with these um, little pointed hats. But this order was generally tolerated in the North as long as the monks went about their business as quietly as they certainly do here. And it does not preclude the possibility that, like the compilation of architectural styles in his street scenes, Frel merged a number of elements, possibly based on travel and memory. But the Capuchin monks are helpful in one respect as they stand here to the left of the bakery, perhaps waiting for alms. And it led me to think more about these bakeries, especially this one with the figure of a man peering out from the window. One scholar has suggested that Frell, as an artist, would have identified with the baker 
but I can't help but wonder if Frell was an actual baker. If he were a baker, he would have been part of the Baker's Guild, registered as both a citizen and baker in the archives. But if the German variation on Jakob Frell's name is any indication, then perhaps Frell was not Flemish or Dutch, but German, as some scholars have suggested. It might explain a lot. In fact, perhaps Frell could have sold his work regardless of the guild to which he belonged because he was German, not Flemish or Dutch. And again, I'd like to look more at um, Tenier's role as the agent and curator, see if he was able to um, smuggle some of these works into the Archduke's collection. Regardless, it widens the window of opportunity for archival research, particularly in the area of the North Rhine-Westphalia, which is in close proximity to the artistic centers proposed and rejected for Frell's citizenship. As luck would have it, I will be in Bonn in several weeks. I will search the archival holdings, including registries from both the bakers and artist guilds, to cast a wider net. Perhaps Frell was not a baker. Perhaps it was his father or family member. Perhaps I can return to this work with new insight. Frell's citizenship, his existence for that matter. Perhaps not. Perhaps my European colleagues in their collaborative efforts to present an exhibition on Jakobus Frell in 2020 will help us to understand the enigma of Jakob Frell. At the very least, we can embrace his contributions just briefly, uneclipsed by those of Vermeer's. Most importantly, as scholars, museum visitors, as viewers, I hope we can, at the very least, participate in the process. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 